Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Crowdsourcing Sustainability Podcast. Today, we are lucky enough to be with Damon Gamo. Damon is an award-winning actor and director whose latest documentary, 2040, may be one of my favorite climate docs to date. With a touch of humor, great visuals, and highlighting people scaling up today's climate solutions, Damon paints a hopeful picture of what the world could be in 2040 a world that his seven-year-old daughter, Velvet, will someday inherit. The film has sparked an impressive impact campaign that is in it. Sorry. The film has sparked an impressive impact campaign in its wake and led Damon, led to Damon's recent nomination for New South Wales' Australian of the Year Award for his work in the regeneration movement. So without further ado, Damon, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. So we'll be diving into the film, of course, the impact campaign that's been built around it, your thoughts on climate storytelling, and much more. I'd like to start by taking a step back and hearing more about your climate story, especially how it got started. So could you walk me through your climate journey? Like, when did you start caring about this? And what made you decide to work on climate? Well, I remember reading... So Tim Flannery is a scientist in Australia. He's quite well known around the world. And he wrote a book called The Weathermakers in the late 1990s, actually. And it was the first sort of indication, I guess, the first sort of mainstream novel that started to articulate this problem. And I remember reading it. I was in my 20s at the time, but I guess not giving it much weight. I sort of, I started to understand the concepts at a very basic level, but then sort of parked it as I tried to find my own place in the world and work out what I wanted to do and explored the various careers and tunnels and adventures that you go on in that stage of your life and had always had this sense in the back of my mind that it was something I did deeply care about. Once I had children, I think that was then pushed to the fore. But I remember reading an article about a bleaching event on the Great Barrier Reef. It was 2016 and it was the third bleaching event that we'd had in a very short amount of time. And I got halfway through that article and then turned the page and started reading something else in the newspaper, but stopped myself and and thought, why couldn't I finish that article? Here is something that I care about and I have children and it's about their future. And yet I couldn't connect with that subject. And so I started reading a little bit about the psychology around climate change and how it impacts our brains and the motivation and the complexity of who we are as human beings. And I just thought, wow, there's a, there's an opportunity here to try and offer up a different story or a different narrative to get people like myself more engaged than they are right now. And so I guess that started this pretty intense journey for me of, I would have spoken to more than a hundred different academics and professors and scientists and futurists around the world to get a, a, a sense of the problem. So I understood what, what was actually going on, but then I could start to think about and research the things we could do about it. So right. that was about a six year process up to now, really, but there was about a year of research before I even filmed anything with with the film just to give myself a quick rapid homeschool of what's going on so that I could try and articulate it more clearly I guess or disseminate some of that quite jingoistic language when you think about it sometimes and put it into analogies or ways that parents people uh, the layman I guess could understand because I do or maybe we can get to this is sometimes lament that this whole topic has been cased in a very political or scientific language and set of codes that really ostracizes 99% of humanity. So uh, those scientists do an incredible job, but I think they need work and they need uh, the arts industry and filmmakers and other people to to help them communicate it uh, in a better way. 
Absolutely. Yeah, that's actually, that's one of the things that brought me to doing this work as well as I cared very deeply about the issue just because I saw it as kind of, for me, the realization was if we don't get climate right, everything else is going to be wrong kind of thinking and just felt like I had things to say in a way that I didn't hear anyone else talking about it in that way in the media or you know, friends, conversations with friends and family and that sort of stuff. Um, so that definitely resonates deeply with me. And I think you, you kind of just touched on it there, but where did the idea specifically for 2040 come from? Can you walk us through sort of the, your yeah. thought processes behind it and like what the germ of the idea mm. was and how it evolved over time? Well, I mean, I had been involved in the film industry for, for a long time as an actor for a long time. And then uh, I made my first documentary, which was called That Sugar Film, and that had a very big impact in Australia and around the world. And so I guess I saw the power and potency of storytelling, but also realised how subversive a lot of our narratives are in terms of betraying the real aspects of, of who we are as humans, our deep ability to connect, problem solve, come together, offer up hope, that really we, we'd succumb to very dystopian narratives in a, in a whole range of areas, and particularly when it came to the future, that, that, that any future portrayed by Hollywood was, you know, largely devoid of any nature and, and, and full of robots and no humanity and, and a really dark world. And, yeah. and I thought these are the images that we are planting into our, the subconscious of our children. And if we're not careful, we'll all collectively manifest that reality because it's the only one that we've seen. So I did feel like there was an opportunity because I, I had a hunch that a lot of people didn't want that future for their children, that it didn't have to look like that. We could actually have the opposite of that and have a very functioning, flourishing world for humanity and have nature right throughout our cities and eco corridors and growing food everywhere. And to throw that little pebble into the pond and, and, and see if it sort of had any resonance or, or ripple effects. So that was a big motivator. Um, but also I spoke to an environmental psychologist, uh, Dr. Renee Lertzman, who's in the States, and, and she really walked me through the, 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 the new neuroscience of how our brains are affected when we're only seeing, you know, negative, fearful, anxiety-inducing information. It really does activate these parts of our brain and limbic system. And, and when they're activated, we, we can't problem solve or we can't think creatively because we're in that sort of fearful response and I would say that the majority of humanity when it comes to talking about climate change just switch off straight away because of what it elicits in them those feelings a feeling of hopelessness of fear of well I can't do anything about it so I just thought that there's got to be a way to motivate and bring people forth and I'd read um, the work of Viktor Frankl who talked about you know man's need for hope to get through I'd read about the Stockdale Paradox, who was the, the admiral in, in, in Vietnam, who again had found this ability, this radical hope just to get through. And, and I thought, gee, there's something in this that, that if we can tell a story about what lies on the other side of this crisis and really articulate the peop to people the benefits of having more nature in our city, which drops the temperature, which reduces the fight and flight response in our brain, the benefits of healthy food that come from revitalized soils and whatnot. If we could tell those um, stories of gain rather than sacrifice and depravity, which is all pervasive as a narrative around climate change, we might bring more people along for the journey. So really that's my offering and that's what I do now with, with my work in Regen Studios, which is a company I've founded now. We just tell stories 
that are designed to inspire and excite people about a better future we could build. And it might not be by 2040, it might be by 2100. But how do we move from an industrial civilization to an ecological civilization? That really excites me. Whether I'm a, a, around for the end result or not, that's what I want for my children and, and, and all their friends and, and their children is, is a shot at living in a really beautiful, interconnected system uh, that has nature at its very core. I love that. I love that. And it's so needed <laughs> right now. So thank you. Um, it actually makes me think of the Green New Deal and Project Drawdown. I know you spoke with Paul Hawken in the film, but uh, I see it as this somewhat of a turning in climate storytelling and the narrative where we're getting more voices talking about the solutions and how much better the world could be and how this is really a win-win-win for people in the planet and you know, bringing people out of poverty and and everything. So I love that. Well, it's an interesting, you know, especially given we're talking right now, only 12 hours really since the IPCC released their sixth assessment. And again, there's lots of different ways you can look at that. And I've even been looking at some of the reporting that's come out of the New York Times and other organizations. And it's just, it makes me just want to scream because it's like, well, we've pretty much got no hope. The uh, It's runaway climate change. Like this, this doomsday nihilism is just so destructive for us as human beings and and it isn't true even the the report itself says yeah absolutely we're on track for 1.5 degrees in the next 20 years but if we stop all our fossil fuels right now if we if we have huge reforestation and soil health programs we can keep it under that so again there's different ways of of dealing with this report and reporting it that are so important and and there's a quote by charles kettering who who worked at ford years ago and he said that a, a problem well stated is a problem half solved so what we have now is this incredibly robust and articulate scientific assessment of our problem. Great. We should absolutely celebrate that. We know exactly what's wrong and what's happening. But now that also creates a springboard for us to go, right, well, let's just roll our sleeves off up and start solving this. Whereas if we're starting to talk about inevitability and collapse and runaway climate change, it just people will shut off and they'll watch more Netflix and numb themselves on opiates and think, well, it's all doomed. Who cares anyway? And you know what? That is a narrative that has been perpetuated by the fossil fuel industry for the last 30 years. They know if they can get people feeling nihilistic, they won't become activists. They won't get involved and fight because they think it's all just too late. So we just have to be so careful and strategic with how we message in this moment. And again, this is what you're doing. This is what I'm trying to do. It's trying to present this as an opportunity. So many of us are unhappy with this system. Mental health, disease, obesity, climate collapse, species extinction, all these things are interconnected. We have a fundamentally flawed architecture of a system that is creating all these problems. Why can't we come together and say, none of us are happy with this, except a few billionaires and a few other people. Let's flip this on its head and actually create a system that works for all of us so that we can reinvigorate our communities again, integrate the living world and actually leave this place in a better state than, than, than we found it. So um, that's the narrative we've got to put out there, that this is an exciting time, a remarkable time in the species of human beings where we get to flip a system on its head. And imagine historians three years from now looking back to this moment saying, imagine being alive then at the start of this incredible journey where they transition to energy, their food, their agriculture, you know, their, their, their transport, all these things changed. And those people were around for that time. Like, you know, this is a gift if we can look at it that way. 
It's so true. I'm I'm in complete agreement. the The question is, how do we amplify that? And I was going to ask you this later, but you kind of you led right into it. So, do you have any specific advice for you know just regular people uh, who want to start talking about climate more because they haven't at all yet, or maybe they're already talking about it, but they're not getting the conversations they want exactly? Do you have any tips for for speaking on this? Well, I think talk, talking about it is a great tip because it's something we don't do enough. We're all scared to have these conversations with, with people we love, with our family, uh, on social media, because, you know, we can get blowback because not, not everyone understands the, the urgency of this moment. So I think conversations are really important, but not coming in with a belligerent activist energy with actually humanising this conversation and finding what it is that someone else uh, that you know cares about deeply, because we all care about healthy food. We all care about um, clean skies and clean water and, and a future for our children. So it's just about being strategic with how you talk about it. But also, I think there's so much that can unite us right now, especially in your country, in the left and the right divide, is that really this we are fighting each other when we should be fighting the system because there are people controlling this and the mechanisms of our system that are robbing all of us. And I think it's important to understand that, that we actually all want community. We all crave more power in our local regions, yet we have a system that completely robs us of that. It is focused on global wealth, global extraction, bigger and better, more expansion, more growth. And so we're actually heavily taxing and over-regulating local businesses while we're giving a free ride to these transnational corporations and subsidizing them with our taxpayer money and not charging them any taxes. And so we have this enormous schism so all of us should be uniting on that, whether we're social or environmental activists or just people who care about their own community. Because I think in your country, as you know, I'm sure, is that that's been a huge part of the unrest is this, this sense of communities being torn apart and jobs being taken away and decisions, really important decisions being made from a transnational corporation or a, a, a parliament that's a long, long way away. So if we can get back to the local that's something that we're all going to connect with because that's all how we evolved. We had more control and understanding. We had more sovereignty around our food and our energy and our manufacturing. And that's the very thing we need to do to solve so many of the problems we're facing right now. We're not going to solve it by growing at 3% every year. And the, the economy is going to be seven times bigger by 2100. Seven times. You know, that's more plastic in the ocean, more destruction of forests, destroyed animals. Like, more gap in income inequality. It's madness. It's a suicide mission. So I think it's understanding um, the system so that we don't get caught in a fight with each other, which is exactly what the gatekeepers of this system want us to do while we're bickering and, and tearing each other apart on social media. They're unravelling more uh, regulations and, and creating more tax breaks for the wealthy, and we're, we're ignorant to it. So I, I think that is a huge part of the problem here is understanding the architecture and the engines of this machine that are causing all of these problems. And, and they're things that we can find agreement on uh, and move forward on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the the polling in the US for a, a wealth tax, it's through the roof. Yeah. And uh, this also makes me think of just how intertwined democracy reform is with climate yeah. action, because, you know, these there's so many politicians who are completely corrupted by these big corporations, whether it's fossil fuel, uh, a fossil fuel industry or not. And so there's some very basic things that need to happen and be passed, at least in the U S I'm sure 
in many other places as well. Yep. Same here. As, as we are as bad there uh, here as, as you are there in terms of our polluted democracy. Yeah. Yeah, because if the politicians aren't accountable to the people and they're just listening to the dollars, then you're starting from a place where things aren't going to go very well. No, and also we it, it we we have it. We've set up a system with such perverse incentives that it largely rewards psychopathic behaviour. It rewards someone who's willing to step all over someone and not show empathy. They often become a CEO or they become a president. You know, this is totally shameless a really broken system when we're pushing that person to the top. Because if you look at even our hunter-gatherer methods, that person was ostracized, sometimes killed or removed from the tribe because they understood how destabilizing that energy could be to a group collective. Yet we flipped that and we now reward that person. And what do you know? We have these people in a very concentrated high level of power that are not making decisions that are beneficial to the greater whole. So, yes, you're right. These things are deeply intertwined. We can't just tinker around the edges and, and expect to solve our climate issue and then, you know, be fine. We will have huge elements of, of inequality, uh, social disruption, fracturing of democracy, even if we lower our emissions, you know. So uh, these things can't be looked at um, through separate lenses. This is a full system re reboot overhaul, which, again, um, is challenging and no one has the answer. And if they do, they're kidding themselves. They're, this is not the moment for a hero saviour. We've done that. Um, this is about the, the, the sangha, the group finding an answer. And I think that's really important to remember is that we can't rely on one person to pull this off. It's actually going to take a collective effort to come up, uh, design new systems together, work out what that looks like, and then start to transition it. And it's going to be clunky and there's going to be people that are hurt and there's going to be a lot of unrest but that's what it's going to take to, to get to a better world because we've just done so much damage and we haven't acted fast enough, unfortunately. Yep, 100%. So switching gears here, I want to get to the making of this film. Uh, what was that experience like for you? Like, what was it like to travel the world and talk to all these people about climate? Uh, and then I also would love to hear what it was like filming the kids and interacting with the kids because mm -hmm. that was one of my favorite parts hearing their answers yeah i mean look i think the whole journey for me has been quite transformative in that you know so much of my fear and anxiety uh six years ago when i started um a lot of it has been alleviated i mean i still have moments where of course i'm um you know like the release of this report i still have pangs of like oh there's so much to do but i think when you are talking to these type of people every day and these are people that don't get any coverage of the mainstream media we hear very little about them it's extraordinary how much is going on behind the scenes. And, and Rebecca Solnit talks about that, the hope in the dark, away from the main spotlight. It's the people in the shadows where the hope lies because they're the ones getting things done. And, and that's what I've spent the last six years doing is speaking to those people and communities or initiatives or and just the amount of creativity and ingenuity now that's going into this space is unbelievable, really, especially even in the last probably 18 months. So there is enormous reason for optimism. Um, uh, it doesn't, you know, um, distract or, or, or shy away from the urgency of what's required. But um, I feel certainly more hopeful for humanity than a grounded hope, a muscular hope than I did six years ago. And, and that's because, you know, narratives are so powerful, as we know, and the stories we tell ourselves shape our own lives and our interactions with everyone else. But the collective narrative we tell is also incredibly powerful. And, and most people are just swimming and drowning in this doomsday nihilistic narrative whereas i guess i've been fortunate enough to, to 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 spend a lot of time with people that don't believe that and are not accepting that narrative 
and they're finding a way to solve it. So I can categorically sit here with you right now and say that we've got everything we need to turn this around. We can grow enough seaweed, we can plant enough trees, we can rebuild our soil health, we can switch to renewables. We can do all that and actually have a beautiful functioning world, not just for humans, but for all ecology. Um, so that gives me that gets me up every day is 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 to know that that's possible and that drives me and I guess I want more and more people to try and understand that and know that all is not lost there's there's incredible amounts to do um, and again as you touched on the children I guess um, it was kind of bittersweet because a lot of them were, were so deeply concerned about what we're doing and what's going on and they were so articulate that a lot of that I didn't put in the film because um, I just thought it was you know it was it was almost it was too painful some of it it was just some of them hadn't quite worked out exactly what was going on, but they had a feeling that something wasn't right and they were able to share that. Um, but I guess as you've seen in the film, they're so creative, they're so open, they're so connected to nature still that the, the, the inertia of the system hasn't eroded that in them completely, that they just speak a lot of common sense. And so that's why I put them in the film is that we do need to listen to them because a lot of us have just we've got buried in so many different narratives and stories and we're so, we're so full of stuff that we forget the simplicity sometimes of what needs to be done. And, and those children can just articulate that really, really clearly. So that was a real joy. It was 120 kids in multiple countries from Sweden to England, to the Bronx, to Africa. Uh, and they all shared very, very similar themes and similar concerns and, and, and wanted similar outcomes uh, around animals and trees and nature and um, electric cars. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, that gave me enormous hope. And I think for a lot of people that, probably speak to those kids or interact with some of the kids in the in the climate strike movement gosh they're articulate and they're switched on and they're connected and they speak to each other all around the world very regularly and and they're learning so much about organizing and and democracy aside from climate they're learning about what it takes to make decisions together and listen and 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 learn from each other and uh and i'm really in awe of a lot of those uh, groups that we, we've spent a lot of time with and and you know once they get power legitimate power <laughs> Um, all sorts of things are going to unfold very quickly. So, you know, we're not far from a tipping point. Uh, in fact, we might have already reached one. I'm not sure, or it's the, certainly the beginnings of one, but I think there's going to be a flurry of activity in the next 10 years. It's already starting now. And um, as we know, there are some things that we can't undo. We're going to have more melting ice. The seas are going to rise. We've got more ocean acidification. There's some things we can't undo, but we can stop a lot more damage by by some of the actions we take in the next 10 years. And, um yeah, I think we're going to see some huge changes uh, in the decade ahead. Yeah, that's uh reminds me of one of the things that that I say uh, a decent amount, which is like, you know, climate change is so hard for us to, I think, truly grasp the impacts of. So it's in many ways going to be worse than we expect in our lifetime. But on the, at the same time, we're going to be acting on it so much faster than anyone thinks is possible. And so like we're limited in both directions of imagination. And I think that latter one, especially we need to kind of waken up to because as soon as this dam is broken, there's going to be, it's going to be impossible. It's already kind of hard to keep up with all the good things <laughs> yeah, that are happening. Yeah. And I can't imagine what that's going to look like in even just a couple of years, never mind 10. So as soon as that dam is broken and that tipping point is reached on the social side of things, we're going to have a lot more reason for hope and it's going to be very exciting. We are. And yeah, and, and you're right. And, and just think of all the jobs, like the billions of jobs 
that we can create if we are going to turn this around. I mean, you know, we, again, the narrative is all about automation and robots. The future. Yeah, of course, they're going to play a role. And a lot of those are probably going to do menial jobs that we don't want anyway. But the jobs we're going to need are cleaning up our cities, cleaning up our oceans, planting more trees, improving the food and soil health, you know, bringing animals back to from extinction, like back from endangered lists and whatnot. I mean, this is work with incredible value and meaning that actually a lot of people want. And you see the stories of people that quit a job they're not happy with and they go and contribute in some meaningful way. The joy that it brings them. Again, that is just waiting for us in the decade ahead to really bring people back together and unite them on a common cause of regeneration and moving forward and leaving the, the planet in a better way for their kids. So again, we've just got to get these stories out there. We've got to make sure we sell this um, for the truth that it is and the opportunity that it is. And we haven't done that well enough uh, up to now. Yeah. Building on that, you focus a decent amount in the doc on donut economics. For anyone who's unfamiliar with that, could you give us a brief overview of what it is and why you included it? Like why? Because I find it extremely powerful, um, but I'd love to hear you explain it in, in your own words. Yeah, so, so Donut Economics was developed by uh, an English economist, na economist named Kate Raworth, and um, she is an absolute cracker of a human being um, and still you know, getting huge traction with, with this concept uh, right around the world. And basically it puts some safe boundaries on an economic system that at the moment is based purely on, I guess, a linear never-ending growth curve so it says that we can just keep growing three percent a year and that's what's good for the planet and good for humanity but just takes into account none of the boundaries the planetary ecological or social boundaries that we need to implement whether that's overusing chemicals uh, destruction of our forests and land use uh, ocean acidification climate change let alone income inequality if we cross those boundaries and some of them we've already crossed that's when we start to a destroy our living planet and our home but also really fracture our democracy. So all she's doing is sort of saying, it's common sense, really. Why don't we put some an outer boundary on the ecological boundary so that if we do reach a point where, you know, we, we, we're cutting down too many trees that's going to affect or destabilise the Amazon, for example, an alarm goes off and we say, right, we can't do that anymore. We've got to stay within that boundary. And the same goes socially. If we reach a point where there's not enough healthcare or income inequality reaches a point or girls aren't getting enough education, that's destabilising. Again, we put in a boundary that says, okay, we've got to pull that in. So it's basically a donut shape, and she's trying to get us to operate within that safe space of the donut where life can flourish and we can interact with our living world and our communities are in balance because there's not you know, someone with extraordinary amounts of wealth that's destroying it for everyone else. So it's very common sense, really, and I think it's a really smart, and that's why I put it in the film, it's a great logical first step to whatever new system we're going to build down the track that's fundamentally different in a lot of ways in our incentives and how we interact. And there's any number of theories about that, what, what that might look like. This, to me, felt like the, the fantastic next step of a transition of reining in this unchecked hyper-capitalism that we've developed now that's absolutely, yes, it's brought benefits to a few people, um, but it's largely, we're seeing the impacts now of what this system's doing. So we need to rein it in some way. That's ideally what the, the role of the state and the market was supposed to do. They were supposed to be in balance. That's why we form a government to keep those corporations in check. But what we've done is largely been so blinded by the 1984 narrative and go, we can't have this totalitarian big government that we've let, let the brave new world slip in the back door. And we've now got this absolute 
corporate totalitarianism as well, which is destroying our planet. So neither of those are ideal. I'm not saying that. We just need to find a balance between them, which is what the founding fathers and everyone else set up to do. And I guess that's what Kate's Donut says. It's like, well, let's bring that back into check so that we've still got growth in certain areas that we know are going to help the planet. We've still got flourishing. Of course, we're still pulling people out of poverty. But if it gets to a point that we're absolutely destroying our own house, well, then what's the point of that? So, um, yeah, I, I just I searched long and hard to, to, to see what what was the best system out there and, and hers just stood up uh, head and shoulders above anything else that was there and available right now. And um, as you probably know, or your listeners might know, you know, they've already started to roll that out in Amsterdam. They've embraced the circle there. Uh, and there are jurisdictions right around the world now that are looking at it as a, as a robust model for how they can um, move forward. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty brilliant. Uh, also, if anyone listening wants to do a deeper dive on the outer planetary boundaries, there's another doc that I watched recently called Breaking Boundaries with uh, David Attenborough and... Johan Rockström. I think Yo- Johan, yeah. And that one's fantastic as well, although... You might want to watch both docs <laughs> at the same time because that one's a bit of a downer. But a lot of Kate's work is based on Johan's work there in terms of those planetary boundaries. And that's especially her outer boundaries are based on those that we just we, we just can't breach those. And that's if we do breach them, then we get runaway effects and, and you know, it affects our own life. So, yeah, as you as you as you've just articulated, there's so much great work going on in this space. The fact that we can even talk about this, you, you know, that films out. Kate's work is well known, is that that awareness is starting to come through now and people are starting to understand this and trying to find what they can do about it or talk about it with their friends and get involved because I think especially since COVID, since the Black Lives Matter uh, riots, since climate change, since the fires in Australia now in Greece, like people are starting to see the interconnectedness of all this. These aren't just isolated incidents. We know that there's there's a deeply flawed system that we're operating under and, and really smart minds and, and are starting to have this conversation. And that would have been radical five years ago, but it's not a radical conversation anymore. I think all of us intuitively know that we just can't keep doing what we're doing. Yeah. So feel free to repeat yourself a little bit here, but I'd love to hear again just how you think about storytelling as it relates to the climate crisis and you know, you gave some advice for regular people. I'd also love to hear your advice for, you know, the media, for journalists out there. Like, I I see this as the biggest story of our time. And in my mind, they're failing on this overall. I mean, you can find tons of examples of people doing great work. But by and large, the media has failed on uh, on this story so far. Yeah, well, I think if we were living in a sane world, that IPCC report last night would have been live streamed to every living room. It would have been given the same coverage as the Olympics. And, you know, governments and businesses would have to um, outlaw what their actions are today or, or face some kind of sanction. So th- that's a sane world if people understood really the urgency of what's at stake here. Um I think the this idea of story, I mean, I'm biased, but I, I think it is so crucial. In fact, probably the most crucial aspect of this whole element and problem because all of us, if you think about, some of us might not even be aware, but we're all telling a story to ourselves. Every interaction you do, whether it's making toast in the morning or driving your car to work, if you actually stop and catch yourself, you are telling yourself a story about who you are, 
how you you interact. Largely, it's a self-deprecating story and one that isn't serving you. It's saying, well, I'm not good enough here or I can't do that or I'm scared of it. But that is a narrative that you're running. But collectively, humanity has one as well. And whether we know it or not, we're all kind of swimming in it. And it largely says that, well, we need to keep growing and we need to keep extracting and nature is separate to us. And, and you know, we're selfish, uh, greedy human beings. And, and this is a system and it's all about the individual and there's no such thing as community. All these things have been cultured and have been told to us by other people. And we buy into it as a, as a collective story. And I'm here to tell you that we can change it. And a lot of it is absolute nonsense. So... The role of media, the role of storytellers, poets, artists, songwriters, musicians has never been more important because what their role is, is to shape culture. And then that culture decides what lives and dies, survives or thrives. So if we aren't telling better stories, then people are going to keep believing this story that they're told by mainstream narratives and we're going to fly off the cliff and everything's going to fall apart. So... There are countless examples through history of, of really deep understanding of ontology and storytelling, of different tribes, of like uh, groups of, of, of explorers that first travelled to these islands in the South Pacific where they, they landed and they just brought this story of the mainland with them and they over, you know, felled their trees and planted crops and overhunted their fish and realised they couldn't survive doing that. And so as the new explorers came in, they told new stories to teach people uh, their ancestors down the line about how to respect nature, how to work with it, how to grow abundant crops. They wrote songs and created rituals and storytellings that made sure that they were sustainable. And that's exactly what we need to do right now, that we need to tell better stories because we are social animals and we forget that. We are very malleable and adaptable. And countless studies show that if someone, you know, is there to put out a fire with a bucket of water, someone next to them will grab a bucket of water and put out that fire. If someone puts solar panels on their roof, the chances of the neighbours in the street putting solar panels go up exponentially because we're constantly sending social cues to each other about how to behave and what the norm is. So we can flip our collective story very, very quickly if enough media outlets start talking about this, if enough of our Hollywood filmmakers start telling better stories that aren't full of this dystopian crap future, that start um, telling stories about our real interconnected values of who we are as human beings, that yes, selfish and being greedy is a tiny trait, but the rest of us, actually, it's a miracle that we even get on each day and pass strangers and get on a, a plane with someone we don't even know who's flying the flight, but we just trust them. Like all around us, there are examples of, of how miraculous it is that we get on in the ways that we do. That they're the stories we need to start telling. And, and I hope that, you know, in 20 or 30 years, our number one rating show, you think of something like The Survivor, which is a show about how a group of people outdo each other so that one can remain. Imagine the number one rating is a show about how 20 people work together to create a harmonious island so they can all exist. That's The Survivor, is all of us working together. Like it's not the last person. That narrative is dead and gone. We can't have that anymore if we're going to get through this. So um, storytelling, yep. Whatever shape that is, um, come on. Artists, big musicians, where's the big commercial band now? Writing a song about climate, writing a song about system change. They were everywhere when I was younger, but they're not, they're not there now. They're homogenised. Everything has been become a monoculture. And we need to bring back the diversity. We need our storytellers to be brave. And we are all storytellers. Anyone with a social media platform is a storyteller. So we need to be really strategic about what messaging we're putting out there right now. It, 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 it 
it couldn't be more important in this moment. We are in a code red moment for humanity and we've got to tell better stories and not fight each other, but fight the system and fight for a better world. That is so well said. Uh, what is the story that you tell to Velvet? Hmm. Yeah, so it's a... it's. So, so also, sorry, just to back up, this is Damon's daughter who's seven years old, in case anyone doesn't know. And I'm just asking this because I'm sure parents all over the place are trying to figure out how do you talk about this? And you've, you've put a lot of thought into this, I'm sure. So, yeah. So I'm honest with her to a point. I let her know what is happening and what we're doing to the planet. <clears throat> and she's aware she's learning it at school that, that, you know, she, she comes home and tells me things that I didn't know, <laughs> but I also make sure that I, in equal measure, give her a dosing of all the extraordinary things that people are doing and the solutions that they're coming up with and yeah. how interconnected our world is and, you know, show her films like Fantastic Fungi or 2040 or things that really expand her mind and retain her deep love of the natural world because all our kids have that. And if they do love it and they do understand the magic of it, and let's be honest, the more you learn about trees sharing nutrients and supporting each other and, you know, the the fungi under the soil and what that does. It is magic. And if we can tell our kids those stories, then they'll value it. It has meaning, so they'll fight for it and they'll want to defend it. And that's largely the problem with my generation and older. We've we've severed that magic and that connection to the natural world. That story we've told has been that we're better than it, we're superior, uh, it's extractive, we can just, it's lifeless, we can commodify it. So we need to pull that story back in and teach a new one to our kids and make sure they do understand how part of the natural world they are and how magical it is. So that conversation, you know, every day, it's sort of, a, it's a balance between those two. But I think the role of parents and teachers, you know, again, we talk about storytellers, but gosh, what a, what a responsibility right now and a role that parents have that, you know, so many, um, so many older uh, generations you know, we're not going to change them now they're set in their ways and that's understandable to a degree but our kids you know they, they really have an opportunity and, and I you know what gives us the most pride me the most pride is is like the curriculum materials that we de develop for 2040 we've had you know over a million and a half kids have been taught those materials and wow the feedback we get from them the inventions the creativity the the excitement about their careers of the future and engineering to build giant seaweed farms or, you know, microgrids that can connect or driverless car, whatever it might be. What's sparked in them is, is so extraordinary. Um, so if we keep telling them the negativity, if we keep telling them the doomsday narrative, they're going to shut down and they're not going to activate that curiosity and that ingenuity in them. We've got to get them excited by their careers of the future careers that will regenerate landscapes or communities and whatnot because they want to do it and they're excited by it they just don't know what's possible so i'd encourage any teacher that's listening or, or parent to to make sure you're also showing your kids that and, and getting them excited about the possibilities of what they could be involved with when they grow up um, because they're out there and there's people already doing it and there's kids already doing it um, and if they can connect with those people and those children then that will alleviate a huge amount of their eco-anxiety it's probably the number one thing you can do for a child that's feeling that is to get them active and involved and you know whether it's at their school get the food waste system going get the solar on the school whatever it might be get them to learn the governance structures on that micro level which will really well equip them to then expand and and, and know what they can do in the broader community so um that's how i talk to my daughter get involved she's already 
puts up signs around her school about protecting trees and <laughs> and then come home and says, well, it's funny, Dad, because the boys ripped down those signs. So it's not easy being an activist for nature sometimes, is it? It's like, well, no, that's good. You're getting that lesson even now. But um, <laughs> but eventually, eventually, as Paul Hawke and I speak to Paul all the time, he says this, that, you know, climate change will be the number one movement in human history eventually because of the weather that, you know, as we saw last night, we're on track for 1.5 degrees in the next 20 years. That's more catastrophic fires, more intense downpours and flooding. Like people will eventually get it, even those that are on the fence right now, that, that it's inevitable that this will become a movement that unites us all because our planet will become less and less habitable in certain areas. So um, may as well get in line now. May as well get your kids on board now and, and, and get them involved, not to scare them, but to, to share with them the, the possibilities of what we could do to turn it around. Yeah, that is, that is great advice. Could you talk a little bit more and, and build on that on the, the impact campaign and the community that has grown around this documentary? Like, do you have any favorite stories or just what are some of the high level things that, that you think of or that you're uh, like excited to see happening? Yeah, I guess it was born of um, um, loving documentaries and, and being a big fan of them, but often feeling a really rich or strong emotion at the end of them, whether it's anger or frustration or hope or excitement, and then having nothing to do with that emotion. And 10 minutes later, kind of letting it dissipate and, and being back on social media or talking to friends and going, oh, and realizing that, that is a unique moment when that, that emotion is at its, at its purest um, to try and funnel people to get them to use it. So I did, we, we sort of did that in a soft way with, with the sugar film and, just had this extraordinary reaction from teachers and people and you could download an app and count sugar in your food and audit your own pantry and all sorts of things. And we just saw the response to that, that really wanted to do something like that for this and, and, and send people to activate their own action plan. And um, we developed one where, you know, you basically get asked a series of questions about what you're passionate about. So we're not being prescriptive to everyone saying, you know, ride your bike to work or, or, or change your light globe because not everyone can do that or wants to do that. So it was really tailor-made for an individual based on where they're at financially, how much time they have available and what their interests were that were aligned. And, and then we just had an extraordinary response to that of people signing up. And then we teamed up with about 50 different organisations to then send them off to certain areas that align with their values. And, um, you know, we, we, we had crowdfunding campaigns, equity crowdfund campaigns. So we, we raised a million dollars in three weeks to build a microgrid we raised $1.2 million to build a, a, the first seaweed platform down in Tasmania, which is being built as we speak. All the curriculum materials, people are mentoring girls uh, online once a week. Like it's just, just extraordinary. And it's, to me, it speaks volumes to the willingness for people to get involved and act, but the dearth of opportunities that they have to get involved so that we really need to ramp up those that, that, that sort of active content, no more passive content anymore. If you're going to tell a story, make sure you're sending people to where they can get involved. And um, as part of, I've been working with, with Paul Hawke and his new book, Regeneration, is about to come out. We're building a whole platform called The Regenerators, which is all about telling stories of people that are doing great things around the world. But there's a very robust impact campaign with that, uh, including this climate action system, which is developed by a group in America and in Israel. And it's it's like a social action, so like social media, but at the next level up, an evolved, mature adult platform, um, which is all linking people who are doing action around the world. And you sign up and share tips and advice and you get notifications on your phone of when a petition's about to be signed or a tree planting thing, whatever it might be. 
it's just this coordinated network of people that are doing things that you can go on there, you can even observe as a guest and just go, whoa, this is happening. Wow, look at what these people are achieving um, and start to make those, those metrics visible so people can really feel like they're taking part and it's meaningful. And that's what's happened with mm -hmm. the 2040 community. They're just so involved because they can see it's working and we keep showing them and sharing back with them all the achievements that they're doing. Um, and we had, you know, hundreds of people turn out on a blisteringly cold day a couple of weeks ago for a tree planting. So all the Facebook group, those people living in Victoria on the Facebook group, the talk, all decided they wanted to meet each other. So they came together and did a huge tree planting and the Facebook page came to life in real time and these people planted trees, you know. And so we just want to keep doing things like that because people are yearning for it. We're all craving face-to-face. -face. We're all craving community interaction again and something with a purpose and meaning. So I just think there's, um, you know, there's an opportunity, I think, for lots of films now it's starting to happen to develop really clever impact campaigns that allow people to do something with that feeling at the end of the film. Uh, and we've certainly got some really robust uh, evidence now that it can translate into really meaningful and tangible uh, outcomes. That is incredible. Uh if someone's listening to this and they want to check it out, you know, make their action plan, join this community, how do they do that? So just go to whatsyour2040.com, whatsyour2040.com, and you'll see a button there that says, um, I think it asks you if you're seeing the film or not, and then it says activate your plan, and you just literally click on that button, and then we ask you some questions about who you are, and then you get funneled off into different directions, and then you get um, you know, sent into the, the, the community groups. Uh, and then, you know, we, we're about to modify this, but you can actually get, get sent into this larger network um, that's going to launch in October um, through Paul's website and through our website, The Regenerators. And that'll be the test ground to, to just, you know, bring all these people into this interactive network so they can sign up, get a profile uh, and start taking action and learning about what they can do. That's super exciting. And I'll, I'll throw that link in the show notes. Uh, and I've actually heard rumblings of this climate action system that that you and Paul are throwing together been in some conversations. So I'm very excited to see that, see that launch. Yeah. And look, it's, it's mainly, yeah, the work of Harry Alaska and another guy called Ilan Rosbach and he's in Israel and it's their brainchild. And it's been a couple of years of them, credible software experts that, you know, speak in language that I don't understand, but what they've developed is a, is a really interesting, simple, clear user interface that will evolve and emerge. And it's been designed like that, not to be perfect to begin with, but um, I just, it fills me with so much hope when they take me through the steps and I feel about what this could be and turn into in the next couple of years is quite extraordinary in terms of what it offers and, and the interaction of it. it is just so rich and heartfelt and meaningful and they've just got the best intentions with it. There's no um, financial um, obligation there. There's no centralised sort. They want it decentralised and free and just a network for people that can use and, and, and that intention is just rippling through all of it which is exactly what we need um, and so refreshing so uh, fingers crossed that it, it does resonate in the way that I hope it will absolutely and I, I was going to ask what you're working on now is that your big project right now yeah that's that's a pretty that's taken up a lot of time that platform and and obviously a piece of content just to sort of um, I guess articulate what regeneration means to people and put a line in the sand about defining that term so it doesn't get hijacked and bastardized like sustainability has been in other words uh, that we know um, and also that's we're working with Luis Ahoya who did the Cove and Racing Extinction and he's doing uh, this projecting change so we're making a few pieces that they're going to project onto the New York skyline in October and that's going to be live streamed nice. on YouTube and TED too I think um, and that's just like 
you know, three one hour pieces of content to really wake people up to what's going on and to the action we need to take and to the positivity. So they're using a lot of um, 2040s projections there and the children uh, that you connected with um, will be projected onto those skyscrapers, um, which will be really beautiful. Uh, and also a project I'm doing now called Regenerate Australia, which is a, I guess it's a vision for what Australia can be in 2030, but it's set as a news report in 2030, looking back at the decade that was. And I've used really well-known um, Australian newsreaders and journalists who are all really willing to read these stories of the future that they hope happen. And then I've used a lot of stock footage and recontextualised it to show the outcomes and how it would benefit communities and the ripple effects and landscapes changing and oceans getting healthy. So that, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, hopefully it's a, it's a sort of foray into a, a waveform world to try and bring it into an, into a matter and a a material world. It's a conjuring of a, of another dimension that I hope when people watch, they go, Oh, this would be interesting. Or let's, let's do that. That'd be a great thing to happen. So again, just playing, playing with story, playing with different form of trying to engage people and get them excited and, and trying to manifest and bring to life a, a, a different, uh, pathway than we're on right now so um yeah we'll, we'll, i'll let you know how that goes absolutely yeah please do keep me posted i love that paint the picture of the world yeah. that you want to build and live in and give people something to step step towards well yeah and and what's extraordinary about that project is that an organization's come on with a, a multi-million dollar fund so that when we take it to the communities we're going to do like a 60 town tour around australia that there's this fund available. So if they see something in there that they love, we can go, great, you know what? Apply for the money right now to start building it. Here's 200 grand, here's 500,000, like go for it, bring it to life. Here's the opportunity. So it'll be very interesting to see what comes of that. And I guess the community discussions and the agreement and and people trying to find out what, what is best for their community. We're really trying to facilitate all that. So we're not imposing anything. We're just trying to let them come up with those decisions. But at least the film is going to spark the ideas and give them this array of different things from community gardens to community batteries to land regeneration to eco corridors, all sorts of things, and then provide the funding for them to start building it. I guess with the the caveat that they let us come and film and amplify their story and their process so that we can share it with other communities who might learn from them and uh, and do it themselves. I love that i'm so glad that is going to exist soon <laughs> well the challenge would be regenerating america that would be a very ambitious project for someone to take on but oh, let's see hopefully there's some learnings from regenerate australia yeah absolutely so i know we're uh, coming up on time here i've got a few final wrap-up questions mm-hmm. for you uh we'll see how quickly we can get through them so i'm working on setting up a 2040 viewing for folks mm-hmm. in the crowdsourcing sustainability community where else can people watch this documentary if they want to watch it? And uh, for anyone who's listening and wants to host a showing yeah. of 2040, where should they go? Yeah, so if you go to our website, there is a, a screenings button there and we've partnered with uh, the distributor there in America. And so you know you can put it on wherever you want, your town hall and your school library, or your work office. It's very accessible that way. Uh, I think um, one of the networks bought it, uh, CBS actually, which was great, the CW Network actually showed it live on primetime at Earth Day, which was a massive achievement and a real insight into how the behind-the-scenes narrative gatekeepers work there. Them trying to just get that film shown was uh, was a fantastic insight into how reluctant the commercial networks are to do anything about climate change. But to their credit, we had a, a couple of real champions who really fought for it and put it on there, so that's great. Um, I think Amazon Prime have got it as well. 
um, and it's probably on on YouTube for free now. I'd say there's a, there's often you know thousands of downloads that you can't keep up with. We you try to stop them when the film's first being released, but then you just surrender <laughs> to the inevitability of the BitTorrent, and so you could probably watch it anywhere, I guess, for free. Um, but yeah, I'd really encourage a community screening because we 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 provide sort of a toolkit there and a template. There's a corporate program. There's all sorts of other assets that people can use once they've screened the film. And it's been a massive hit with schools, you know, the kids, because there are so many children in it and because I made it in a way that's very playful and user-friendly and very accessible, but um, really is quite a big hit from anywhere from 8 to, to, to 15-year-olds they, they or even 8, 19-year-olds. They really love it. So um, I'd encourage anyone listening to to, to, to host a screening. It's a, a, always a good night and a robust conversation afterwards. Awesome. And for anyone listening who wants to keep up with you and follow you online, where can they find you? Uh, I don't have a lot of time, to be honest, to, to do. Uh, I've probably people, th- uh, I don't have a lot of time to, to do it. So every now and again, I'll post something on Instagram or, or Facebook, but very, very rarely. Um, but once this madness dies down, I'm in the edit right now for the Regenerate Australia and then trying to get the piece done for, for the New York thing in, in October. Uh, I do post things every now and again. So yeah, just the usual channels. There's not many Damon Gammos. Uh, uh, out there that have mimicked me or, or, or other people with that name. So I'm pretty easy to find. Awesome. Well, yeah, definitely do stay focused. That is most important. You, you <laughs> get done what you're working on. Last couple of things here. What book or film do you recommend or gift to people the most? Wow, the most. Oh, there's so many. Well, a friend of mine just wrote a beautiful kid's book, actually, called, got it in my bag here, With a Little Kelp from My Friends. And it's all about nice. the history and the magic of seaweed and all that, the, what it can do for the planet and the benefits and whatnot. It's just a beautiful, I and mean, we talk about ingraining knowledge into a children. That one is really popular. I just finished reading, uh, they're all just happy to be on my desk, this Recapture the Rapture, which is Jamie Wheel's book. I'm not sure if you've heard him, but he, this is really interesting because he talks about um, this doomsday narrative that's pervasive right now, that it's all too hard. Even the billionaires sort of wanting to explore space is a version of that that says we can't save what we have here. Let's start exploring other planets. And to be really wary of that, that it can be, you know, overwhelming and shut people down. Um, And then Humankind, if people haven't read that one, that's just a really beautiful reshaping of who we are as human beings, not selfish and greedy, but actually deeply caring of each other. Um, Yeah, patenting, patenting instinct. Ministry of the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. If you want some fiction, that's a really interesting read. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I try and just sort of drink up as much as I can in this space um, and occasionally read. I'm reading Overstory right now to try and get some, um, some nonfiction in amongst all the dense, heavy information because I forget sometimes that to, to tune myself up on the storytelling skills and not just be spouting statistics all the time because that's the... The number one thing that shuts people off, um, trying to encase it in narratives that are going to move people or make them listen uh, a little deeper, more deeply. Awesome. I was going to ask you earlier if you had read Humankind. I forget what it was you said specifically, but I was like, ooh, I think he read Humankind. I read that one uh, yeah. some months ago. That's brilliant. It's beautiful. And it's I think something we've all intuited. He just articulated something I felt for years. It was like, no, like we are good people. Like, yeah, we've we've got some traits, but gosh, it's, it's incredible that we just coexist with so many strangers every day and we, we, we put trust in extraordinary amounts of people without realising it. Um, and so it was lovely to read that and to see the traction it got um, that, that most people feel that. And again, it's, it, it speaks to the stories we need to be telling and the, the Hollywood stories and all those, you know, those, those um, 
traits that we are perpetuating and and the def definition of who we are and all these reality shows where we're just pushing people to bicker and to show greed and to bring out the worst in us you know that's not who we are it's it's ridiculous and yet they're the number one rating shows because we're, we're forcing people into that state and that's all being released now people being you know they deliberately choose the most psychopathic or the people that are most vulnerable because they, they're going to get great ratings so again it's all because of a system that's perverse incentives those companies need to make money and get the highest ratings so they pick the worst in people to bring that out and that's what we're swimming in and it's it's not true you know, it's just not true yeah yeah do you have a final call to action or message you'd like to share with folks who are listening? I guess we touched on it before with the, the sense of opportunity and, and really reframing this moment as an extraordinary time in our species. And I guess even on the back of the IPCC report last night, that this is the, this is the moment, like this is the time we have to find our agency. It's now or never in a lot of ways. And um, Robert Swan said that the greatest threat to the planet is, is the belief that someone else will save it. That, that we, we can't wait around for that person anymore. It's not going to be a president. It's not going to be an environmentalist. It's not going to be a young teenager. It's actually all of us. And that involves a conversation with a friend. It involves a new vote. It involves a purchase you make of solar panels or the type of foods you eat. All those things combined are the things that's going to get us through this. And so um, I guess just to, for people to understand their power in this moment, that, that you are far more powerful than you realise and and the planet needs you so please step up <laughs> that is the perfect note to end on uh so damon thank you again for coming on the show and all the incredibly important work that you're doing in the regeneration movement thank you ryan and thank you for being a, a storyteller that's telling the important new stories thanks damon take care